Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research. We wanted to dive into a, a couple of topics today. First, we'll look at some telecom news and the general state of the telecom industry with AT&T announcing the nationwide availability of their 5G network. We'll look at Face ID and all of the related goodies coming to the Mac platform. And we'll talk about the return of baseball and, and what live sports looks like in a world of pandemic. Uh, so first, let's jump into the telecom news. As I noted, AT&T is now saying that its 5G network is available nationwide, according to the FCC definition of nationwide. That means it's available to uh, 200 million people in the U.S. AT&T added this week 40 new markets, bringing its total to 395 markets, covering just over 200 million people. So that puts AT&T just behind uh, T-Mobile, which launched its 5G network nationwide in December of, of 2019. If we can remember all the way back what life was like pre-pandemic and, uh, and then obviously puts them both uh, relatively far ahead of Verizon, which is currently available in just 35 cities. So just because the 5G is available nationwide doesn't mean that it's uh, really being used nationwide. It's still very nascent technology, obviously. And a big piece of this is probably that the uh, lack of hardware for the most part from a consumer standpoint, and you, and you really haven't yet seen wide deployment in other, other areas on the industrial side, on the manufacturing side. Still a lot of proof of concept uh, work there in hospitals and in other areas. Yeah, so uh, one of the key differences uh, among how the carriers are rolling this out, there are kind of two flavors of 5G, if you will, as we've, we've discussed on the podcast before. There's uh, so-called sub-6 gigahertz uh, 5G, which is not dramatically faster than 4G at this point. Uh, but much like 4G or LTE, it can be uh, accessed pretty broadly. And then there's millimeter wave 5G, which is super duper fast, uh, but has a very limited coverage. So uh, T-Mobile, for example, has rolled out sub six gigahertz uh, 5G, which has allowed them to reach many markets and um, uh, very broad coverage. Uh, but the benefits of it are not remarkably superior at, at this point. And same thing for AT&T uh, with its uh, 5G. Uh, Verizon, on the other hand, has focused more on this very, very fast uh, flavor of 5G. So when they do demos in, say, football stadiums, when people were able to be very close uh, to the source of the signal, uh, the the performance is incredible. You know, it's it's super duper fast. Uh, unfortunately, if you are say two blocks away from the stadium and there's something like a building between you and the stadium, forget it. You know, you're not going to be able to uh, to access it. And so we've seen this reflected uh, in a lot of the devices that have come out to support these networks. 
the 5G phones are starting to get into the market. Uh, Samsung will be announcing its uh, maybe second generation of 5G phones in a couple of weeks. Uh, we've seen uh, 5G phones from Motorola and OnePlus and uh, TCL uh, and, and others, uh, LG. Uh, they're all, uh, you know, they're, they're all coming into the market, coming into the portfolios. Uh, and, and by and large, those phones are focusing on sub six, which means they're not going to be providing a huge speed boost, uh, but it's an improvement uh, and it will be compatible with uh, the overwhelming majority of, of networks, particularly outside the U.S., uh, which is another factor. Uh, Verizon, on the other hand, uh, they just uh, released a 5G laptop uh, that, Mo that Lenovo uh, has, uh, has released. Uh, and it's, um, you know, it's a nice, sleek notebook, and it's good to have cellular connectivity. Uh, but, um, you know, very few reviews, or I should say most of the reviews have complained about how, you know, they just can't find a Verizon 5G uh, access point to connect to. Um, so, so it seems like uh, the, the, it's going to take a while before the full promise is, uh, is released, is, is uh, full, full promise is realized, uh, particularly for this ultra-fast uh, millimeter wave 5G. So... It would be interesting too. I think uh, 2020's long been the rumored launch of Apple's foray into, into 5G. So this That's fall, right. That's not in the market yet. That's right. We, we may see Apple uh, with their first 5G phone and, and that will probably start to drive some of the, the uptake just given the size of the market that they have here in the US. You might start to see a greater appetite to find that, ac that, that access and, and those access points. As we move, and, and meanwhile, it, it was you know really interesting to see uh, you know earlier this week or uh, maybe it was last week, T-Mobile, uh, you know, emphasizing one of the most low-tech, old-school uh, cell functions that's been out there: voice calls, and in particular, robocalls, which have become uh, you know a pretty big nuisance. And I thought it was kind of interesting how they are employing what they describe anyway as state-of-the-art AI and machine learning to try to solve this, uh, you know, this nuisance of, of robocalls. Um, you know, so, so, some of it, again, is, is very old-school tech. Uh, they're giving away caller ID, right? How long has caller ID uh, been around? They're giving that to all of their uh, customers and taking a revenue hit, so they say, in order to protect uh, their their customers um, and I think I think it's important uh, for T-Mobile particularly as the Sprint brand uh, gets retired uh, in early August to maintain this positioning of being a customer advocate of being the uncarrier as they call themselves and they describe this announcement as their second uncarrier event uh, since the merger so so even though, uh, you know, it's not John Ledger as CEO anymore, it was Mike Sievert, uh, their new CEO, echoing many of the same points, uh, how, you know, they feel AT&T and uh, Verizon are going to follow their lead uh, and, um, you know, uh, that, that, that they're going to blaze this trail 
once again in, in the name of customer advocacy. So the, you know, the strong marketing angle uh, certainly continues. Well, and we saw that they are going to, uh, in the coming weeks, get rid of the Sprint name and it will just yep. be uh, T-Mobile. Do you feel like that's a, a meaningful shift or just another step in this uh, kind of long, uh, you know, long path to being a very competitive carrier? Well, you know, as, as they were uh, pitching the merger, you know, throughout the whole regulatory review, they always refer to themselves as the combined entity as the new T-Mobile. So it's really no surprise that they're retiring the Sprint brand. Uh, probably over the last two years, Sprint's customer service reputation, uh, the reputation of the brand had really suffered. Uh, they were um, you know, having a, re a really hard time uh, with, with their network, uh, with customer service. Uh, and so, I think it makes sense to go with the the stronger, more ascendant uh, brand. Um, and you know they'll still have uh, Metro, their their prepaid brand. They had to get rid of Boost, which was uh, Sprint's uh, Sprint's prepaid brand as as part of the um, uh, part as as a concession to the merger. So they sold that to Dish, uh, and and we'll see what happens with that. But um, you know. Uh, the one way they can keep uh, the the shine on the T-Mobile brand is by making these moves that are perceived as pro-consumer, pro-competition. Pro sure, giving giving away copies of MLB.tv or that's right, the, um, and the know, athletic, right? Doing different yeah. uh, different Netflix things on like us. Yes. Yeah. Um. Well, and, and you know, the other thing I think it brings up is you, you do see, as you noted, companies like Samsung announcing the, the, the Galaxy Z Flip 5G that will start to ship in August. It will be available for AT&T and T-Mobile because it's trying to take advantage of the, those 5G networks that are, are essentially nationwide and, and arguably have right. larger footprints. And, uh, you know, so it'll see be interesting to see if that hurts Verizon at all as some of these newer devices are only available on these other, these other networks and these, these other carriers. Shifting now to our second story, it looks like um, from what we can see that uh, Face ID might soon be coming to the Mac. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it, it makes sense. Um, it's uh, it's part of as as Apple moves to uh, their own chip architecture, it makes sense that they're going to be bringing over more technologies from the iPad uh, and uh, and an iPhone. And uh, actually, Face ID will probably work better on the Mac than it does on the iPhone because you're dealing with a a device that's usually pretty stationary. You don't really have to worry about orientation uh, the way you do on, on the iPhone. Uh, you can uh, you know, probably uh, put in, well, I mean, the iPhone has a very good camera, uh, but uh, you, know, you, you can probably adjust for a uh, you know, few, fewer angles at which the face would need to be captured. I mean, Face ID has taken uh, some criticism lately because, of course, it's been more challenging to recognize faces that have been wearing masks 
you know, as, as a lot of people have. But again, that's that also is probably less likely if people are uh, working working from home. Um, you know, and, and also we've had facial recognition uh, on um, on Windows machines for a long time uh, through the Windows uh, Hello feature. I, I just think, you know, we, we talked, Sean, a, a couple of weeks ago about what Apple might do with Mac pricing. Um, and as, again, they bring these technologies like Face ID over, I really wonder if the Mac could become a stronger uh, competitor to the iPad uh, than many people are considering. I mean, for example, on the iPad today, you know, you've got this issue with, you know, if you're working on it and an iPhone app comes up, it, it, it could be sideways, you have to turn the whole thing, it's very disruptive. Whereas on the Mac, it, it seems like everything is going to run in a window, which is the way it should be. You know, it just seems like a much more logical way to do it. And maybe they'll go back and fix that on the iPad, but in some ways, because you don't rotate the Mac, you know, when, when you're using it, it's a laptop, uh, that provides for a, a better, let's call it flow experience, where you're not interrupting your work to say, oh, wow, you know, uh, I opened this app. It's insisting on, on, you know, me rotating the screen. Let me fold the keyboard behind the thing and, and take care of this now. I would much rather deal with iPhone apps on the, on the Mac, at least the way I've seen it, than, than on the iPhone, than on the iPad. Uh, today. So, so of course, today you can buy an iPad for about $250 and a new Mac starts at about $1,000. Um, so I'm not saying Apple will eliminate that gap, but I, but I am saying they have a lot of room to play with. Uh, and once they uh, don't have to pay the premium for Intel's chips, maybe they bring that down to you know, $899, $799. It, it could be a big, uh, big difference maker, I think. But but I, you know, the benchmarks look really good. Uh, it, this really could be a, uh, a renaissance uh, for the Mac at this point. And it comes at a very interesting time, obviously, with more people working from home, and now everyone's gearing up for a virtual back to school uh, yep. season. Presumably, we will be buying fewer clothes for our children because they won't uh, need as many back to school clothes but they will need electronics and uh, <laughs> we've seen electronics do quite well in recent weeks as, as uh, people have tried to um, build out home offices and customize their, their work from home experience. And so you, you, in the past that back to school market has always been really focused on inexpensive computing products. So Chromebooks and, and other things like that have, have, um, garnered attention from parents and students during that back to school period. But given how heavy we're using these devices now, I wonder if we might see an appetite for more, more expensive desktops and laptops. And, and mm. actually, I, you know, I wonder if the Mac could benefit in that environment where uh, in, in the past, maybe students didn't need a, a full laptop experience, but now, you know, you know, maybe they uh, they do or they should. I know a lot of students would prefer to just take it from their iPhone in bed. But um, as much as you want to try to drive some some schedule and some semblance of of that in school experience into the home. I mean, you know, and it's not just the iPad, right? With the iPhone SE, 
Apple also has a sub $400 product in, it, in its catalog. The Mac is really the only main, you know, Apple platform device, let's call it, where they don't have anything really under a thousand dollars. And that's kind of their opening price point. So, uh, you know, again, I'm not expecting them to make a netbook. I'm not expecting them to make a Chromebook, you know, at, at $200. Uh, but, uh, again, if they can get into that sweet mid range, right. Of, of windows notebook prices at, at what six, $700. I mean, you know, that could be a game changer. You think that's the only thing that it would take to drive Mac share up uh, and, and arguably Mac share is quite low. So even just a few percentage point gain is a significant shift in that marketplace. Could a, a lower priced kind of to your point, mid priced Mac product uh, achieve that? Could it drive say one and a half, two percent a market share to the Mac? Well, I, I think you just look at what the competition looks like in the high end of the market, right? And and Apple is so strong in uh, $1,000 plus segment of the market, right? Uh, even though their market share is tiny, uh, it's, it's very strong uh, in, in that segment of the market. And so, you know, you have to wonder if, if they even come down $200, how much more of the market does that open up to them? Um, uh, particularly if they can achieve these, um, you know, this strong performance uh, that, that they seem to be able to, uh, to achieve and, and the long battery life that they seem to be able to achieve. Now, there's, there's uh, a lot, you know, a lot of moving pieces here, of course. Uh, you know, there's been some criticism that even though the benchmarks look incredible, uh, that won't necessarily reflect real world usage for a number of reasons. Uh, and uh, Sean, to your point about people buying, you know, super cheapy laptops for back to school, uh, Microsoft is rumored to be working on uh, a new uh, foray into that Chromebook uh, price point with what had been called Windows 10X. And now they're looking at making it kind of a web-driven, you know, kind of operating system that uh, that would allow super cheap uh, laptops at, at the price of Chromebooks. So like I said, you know, I, I don't expect Apple to play there with the Mac, although they're not crazy far from that with the iPad, right? You, you pair an iPad with, with a keyboard and you're under, you're under $500, right? right. So, so there are some component differences there. Uh, but, um, you know, but if, if, if you're working off the same processor, same memory, you know, uh, there's got to be some room to bring down prices. Uh, and I don't think even Apple uh, is, is going to shoot for whatever it would be, 60% margin, you know, on, on the Mac. Yeah. Well, it is interesting. I mean, in other Apple-related news, we did see that they're starting to make the, the flagship iPhone 11 at their Foxconn plant in India. So this is the first time they've manufactured top-of-the-line models in India. And this has been a, a push generally. Now, my, my sense is that much of this is driven to try to be more attractive to the Indian market. In, India has a lot of uh, relatively high tariffs on, on products, which then price uh, Apple out of that market and, and other high-end uh, 
smartphone manufacturers out of that market. But if they're producing in the market, then they don't face those tariffs. And so they're able to instantly offer a, a lower price product in the market. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but it'll be interesting to see if that is a, also a, a lower priced product. Are they able to, to achieve some lower prices in, in manufacturing? And might they start to um, export those to other places in the world, like, like the U.S., and, and get away from some of the, the tariffs that are in place now or, or could be in place in the future with respect to trade with, with China? Mm. Uh, so we'll see yeah. there. Uh, and and finally, in other news, the NBA is using Microsoft Teams to bring virtual fans into its real-world games. Baseball is back. <laughs> we saw opening day on uh, Thursday, and I, and I guess technically opening day is Friday, but we saw some, some early games Thursday. The Yankees uh, played the Nationals, my hometown Nationals, and uh, and Ross, I know you're, you're more of a Mets guy than a Yankees guy, but... Um, we saw a bunch of firsts in that game. Obviously, we saw uh, the game only went six innings before a torrential rainstorm moved in. And uh, under their new rules, that was it. It was called a finished game. So both the pitchers were credited with complete games. So already there's a bunch of asterisks on uh, <laughs> on everyone's records. And then we, uh, we went to L.A. where they... Los Angeles Dodgers hosted the San Francisco Giants and the Dodgers have opted to put in these big cardboard cutouts in the, in the stands. I heard last night in the game that if a ball lands, if a ball hits your cutout, then they'll send you the ball. I guess that is hilarious. Your token gift. And so they, they don't, the cutouts don't have to fight the other cutouts. I, uh, yeah, I guess that's right. They're probably yeah. just, foul balls just lying all over the stadium that some intern has to go pick up at the end of the night. But, uh, and then, so the NBA is, is figuring out how to uh, engage fans. One of the things we also saw with baseball, of course, was they're piping in fan noise so that it sounds like a real game, even though the the stands are empty. And uh, Ross, you were noting that uh yeah so the uh well two two funny things about the noise that they're piping in uh one is that uh you know the the whoever is dealing with the sound effects can only react so quickly right so so you know there'll be instances of someone will hit a line drive and the crowd will go wild you know as soon as the guy catches it you know uh so because they just can't um manage the reactions fast enough but the the funny thing from a tech perspective is uh, those uh, crowd sounds have come from a video game. Uh, I believe it's MLB The Show, which seems to be the one that, um, uh, you know, when MLB did its virtual league uh, the, before the season started, that, that was the, uh, the game that they were using. Um, that's one that's that season, by the way, they were, they were the champions in, in the virtual, uh, virtual league. Uh, but um, uh, so, so here are crowd sounds that I'm guessing were sampled from real MLB crowds uh, now coming back into real Major League Baseball stadiums. So it's an example of art imitating life going back into life, I guess. Uh, things, things really coming full circle. So, 
Yeah, and it's it's funny because we we have prior to COVID, we made such a push to make everything digital, and now we're trying to make everything seem not so digital. So it's it's kind of a f- interesting change of events. And and so the NBA said that they'll install these seventeen foot tall screens uh, surrounding the court, and then they'll bring fans into the to the game, presumably using Microsoft Teams. And uh, allow them to uh, attend the game as if they were were really there. I, I suppose so. maybe uh, maybe the only instance where the people in the crowd were taller than than the people on the court, if it's a seventeen foot screen. But uh, but no, I I like I, first of all, I think it's it's brilliant promotion for Microsoft. Definitely, they just announced this feature where you can have a bunch of people looking like they're they're sort of in the same space as opposed to in these little uh, squares, right? Uh, so it's, it's a brilliant way to show that off. Um, and it's, you know, far more interactive than, than the cardboard cutouts, of course. So, um, you know, while it is a relatively small number of fans, uh, at least it's a genuine reaction, even if it's on a, uh, a virtual presence, so. Well, and Microsoft had envisioned this feature to uh, to essentially kind of take the place of a, a virtual conference or a, a, mm-hmm. a virtual mm-hmm. auditorium where you would have more than just a handful of people. And, and people have felt this pain, I think, as we've entered into Zoom calls that have dozens or hundreds of people in it and you're scrolling page to page to page and you can't always find the person you're looking for or see who's talking. So it's just a little overwhelming. So this idea is you can kind of see everyone at the same time. And uh, it's as if they were sitting in an auditorium. So uh, it is a good test for for Microsoft Teams. It's obviously phenomenal placement and, and great promotion for it. And we'll see if it starts to show up in more you know, virtual meeting spaces and, and small conferences. We're, we're probably looking at this world sticking for the the next at least six months uh we'll see how it how it uh, plays out after that so but uh you've got everything having gone virtual and this is uh one more aspect of trying to bring that virtual feel into a to a real live event and you know i can't recall the last time microsoft uh was pushing so hard on end user you know some end user software uh, as as they are on Teams. I mean, they clearly have uh, some strong momentum there. Uh, they also just recently announced uh, something called DataFlex, uh, which is a low-code environment that will allow relatively non-technical people to build like small custom databases within Teams. Uh, they, of course, had a whole bunch of announcements at Build last uh, month that, that I think we, uh, we alluded to some mm-hmm. of them. Uh, and uh, and of course now uh, we're seeing Zoom, you know, which had said uh, 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 or Slack. Uh, was it Slack or Zoom? Uh, that that's I think Slack said that Teams is not a competitor, uh, but I think it was Zoom that just uh, filed suit against uh, Microsoft in in the European Union. So uh, so you know Teams, of course, uh, brings in a lot of the functionality of both of those products. Uh, those two guys were working together, and uh, clearly uh, both of them are are feeling the heat as uh, as Microsoft gets very aggressive with Teams. So, 
Yeah, and, and this is obviously a sweet spot for Microsoft. It, it's an area where they have excelled in the past, and then sometimes they faltered significantly in the past. I mean, uh, you could argue that the acquisition of Skype should have been a, a dominant force, and uh, yet Zoom was able to kind of step in and, and really control a lot of that space that, that could have been an area owned by Skype. Uh, from the onset of, of the pandemic, but Teams does well, seem uh, to offer a lot of great features. I know some schools are using them, and uh, so this particular feature of Teams you could see working quite well in a classroom, actually. Uh, a couple of acquisitions, actually, not just uh, Skype. Uh, that was probably the highest profile one, but they bought a company called Placeware, which became mm -hmm. Link, which became Skype for Business. Uh, and, and never worked well in, in any of those uh, iterations, in my experience. Uh, they also bought a tool called Yammer, uh, right. which was kind of like instant messaging, you know, for, uh, for within a company. Right. And uh, I think a lot of customers were confused, uh, you know, which of these tools should we be using for what? Uh, and so Teams has uh, really evolved. Uh, in fact, I wrote a, a column about this for ZDNet uh, into a nexus for a surprising array of, uh, of Microsoft technology and initiatives. So uh, they're, they're running with it. Um, the user base is growing like crazy. And, um, you know, I, I think we're just even going to see far more aggressive integrations uh, uh, with it. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot more to come to your point. They're definitely investing here. I mean, this is, uh, is this partnership with the NBA would be interesting to see what the economics look like behind that. But that's uh, obviously a great sponsorship for them if it ends up working as they, they hope that it, it does. It is difficult to replicate the physical world in the digital world, though, I, I am realizing. As much as we talk about the digitization of our physical world, it's, it's much harder to go the other way around and bring this physical aspect into the digital world. And that's uh, something I think these companies are still struggling mightily with. Uh, that's probably a great place to end it for the week. Again, I'm Sean Duberback. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Duberback. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin.